Amen. It is our privilege to return to God's Word this morning and that of Acts chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you do not have your copy of God's Word along, we would ask that you'd use the pew copy in front of you. And if you do not possess a Bible, it would be our privilege and joy for you to take that home so that you would be in possession of God's holy word to you. Acts chapter 15, we'll begin reading in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. And he has made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You may be seated. In 1973, there was a formation of Presbyterian pastors and elders that came together to think about a new church, a new denomination. They had struggled long and hard to call the denomination that they belonged to, to biblical fidelity. But it became more and more clear that the majority of the church was not content with those same objectives. So in 1973, there was a gathering where the decision was made that to remain in the present denomination that they belonged to would be sinful and that they were not being good shepherds of those that were under their care. And so there was a call for a continuing Presbyterian church 
with the objective of being, quote, loyal to the scriptures, faithful to the reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. If you're not familiar with that history, that was the start and still is the distinctives of the Presbyterian Church in America, which we belong to. And for some of you, that is not history. You lived it. This church, in fact, and the pastor at that time, was on the front lines of that movement. And though I was not a part of it, that was before my day, I know that that was not an easy decision. It came with much deliberation and much tears. I remember one of my seminary professors, Dr. Morton Smith, telling our class of how he was informing his church that he pastored at that time, the the crisis that was facing the church and their decision to leave the denomination and the church that they had been a part of for well over a hundred years at that time. And following that update and that announcement, he was met by a woman in his congregation who agreed with the decision, and yet tears flowed down her face. And I believe that is the proper response. We sing of it often, do we not, in the church's one foundation, that though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? Yet soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Division, no matter what type of division it is, and we've seen much division in our country over the last several years, but division, especially within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is always extremely painful. And whereas too often it happens for petty and illegitimate reasons, there are times that a line in the sand must be drawn, that we cannot cross. To do so is to compromise our loyalty to Christ and to his church. That obviously should not be done quickly or flippantly. We want unity. We want to be one even as he is one, but we also cannot have peace at all cost. And where that line exactly lies is truly hard to discern, is it not? And I hope that I and we as a church will never have to come to that same decision like they did in 1973. But if we do, I think Acts chapter 15 would be our guide. Because here we have just exactly what we have talked about. We have division, division within the church. Not about what color to paint the church or what to serve at the fellowship lunch. No, there was doctrinal issues, gospel issues, of which there was no compromise. There was one side that was right and one side that was wrong, but the question was, which one? And so from Acts 15, I think we learn what matters are worth a fight and a debate and how such matters should be handled. So we'll look at this passage in 
three points, dissension, deliberation, and then decision. First, dissension. As you remember, as we made our way through the book of Acts last week, Paul and Barnabas had just completed their first missionary journey, and they had gone back, returned to the church in Antioch, the church that sent them to give them a a missions report. And they declared, as it says in verse 27, all that God had done with them. And much had been done. There was tremendous success, if you could put it in those terms. The, The gospel was going forth. There was many Jews and Gentiles that were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The great commission was being fulfilled. That commission that Jesus gave at the beginning of Acts to go from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth was really taking place. And so Paul and Barnabas were delighted to share in what the Lord was doing, talking about how God, as it says, opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And so it was clearly seen that God was doing a work amongst the Gentiles. That had obviously already been seen in Antioch, which was kind of the testing ground. But this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas was the confirmation that was needed. God was truly saving the Gentiles. God was saving the nations, you could say, in massive numbers. Well, that led to a question. Well, what should we do with this new group that is coming into the church? How should we feel about this as Jews? How are we to treat these people? And you need to understand that this was new. This was radically new. We oftentimes think that we have racial tension in our country, and we do. But nothing compared to Jews and Gentiles. Because there was no intermingling. There was no speaking. There was no association whatsoever going on. And as I've said, I I believe that was wrong. The Israelites were wrong in that. Yes, they were to be distinct. They were not to be like the nations. But that did not mean that they were to disassociate from them. No, they were to be a, a light to them. And rather, they had become exclusive and treated others with disdain and hostility And that was wrong. It was sinful. But now it was clearly being demonstrated through the preaching of God's word that God was breaking down that disassociation. God was breaking down that wall of hostility that Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. But what does that exactly mean? Well, there was some within the church. These are brothers. These are converts. These are true believers in Christ. They were looking at what was going on and saying, yes, God is doing a a work among the Gentiles, and that is good. He is saving the, the heathen, and we are glad for that. But there is still a difference between Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because we cannot lose our otherness as Jews. We have to keep our distinctions. We have to keep our traditions. We are still the chosen people of God, and that means that we need to be the people of God, and that means that we need to be separate from the world. 
And therefore, if the Gentiles are truly God's people, then they need to appear as God's people. In other words, they need to be like us. They need to live as Jews. They need to keep the custom of Moses and the holy days and the festivals, and they need to dress like us. And they must, they absolutely must be circumcised. Why? Because that is the the sign of the covenant. If they do not have that, then they are not a part of the covenant. And so you can see how circumcision, that decision, that that debate over circumcision became the, the pinnacle symbol that represented everything Jewish. Really, it represented everything it meant to be a part of God's family, a part of God's people. And so, as it says in verse 1, there were those that were coming down from Judea, going to Antioch, and teaching that church, unless you become circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we read that, and we think, well, that seems very silly. And we might think, well, yes, of course, that is wrong. Why was there such a debate? Why was there such a division? Why was there dissension in the church? But you must understand how a compelling argument could have been made. It would have gone something like this. God called us out from the world. That sign of being called out, of being different, being distinct, was that of circumcision. And God has cut a covenant with us. And what does that mean? It means that we are cut off from the world. We are to be separate, and we are to belong wholly to the Lord. If these Gentiles are not willing to do that, then can we really say they've left their former life? Have they really made that decision? Have they really gone to be with God and with his people? Because they can't have one foot in with the world and one foot in with us. And so if they are not willing to do this, are they really serious about their faith? Don't we need to question their commitment, question their salvation? Now again, Even that may sound a little bit antiquated in our minds. But doesn't something similar happen in the church today? I tell you it does. It's not about circumcision in particular, but it is other manners. It's other behaviors that we as Christians say that you need to do this in order to to be a Christian, to look like a Christian, to function as a Christian? Well, it goes something like this, doesn't it? Have you seen so-and-so over there? Don't they know how to dress like a Christian should dress? Her dress, her skirt does not even reach her knee, let alone her ankle. And does he not own a tie? Or even better yet, a Presbyterian bow tie? And their children, Oh, don't get me started about their children. Their children are so unruly. They don't even have biblical names. Or at least your favorite theologian. I heard that they 
put their kids in public school. I don't know about that. Obviously, they don't love their children as much as we love our little Ebenezer and Mary Ruth. (laughs) I'm pretty sure when they came into the church parking lot this morning, I heard them listening to classic rock. Don't they know that K-Love is the only station God approves of? That's right, safe for the whole family. They're probably Democrats. (laughs) Are they even Christians? Well, maybe they can learn a few things from us while they're here. Maybe they can become more like us. Now, that's a bit of an over-exaggeration, but I tell you it's only a slight exaggeration because even though we may not verbalize those things, Surely we thought it. And typically those things, do they not focus on externals, what a Christian does or does not do, how they are to look, how they are to behave. It is the same thing, I tell you, as the Jews demanding circumcision. It's just a different set of externals. Now, Christians are to bear fruits, no doubt. If you were in the Sunday school this morning, you heard Pastor Myers talk about sanctification, Yes, sanctification is to be a part of one's life. But the fruit that comes forth of your sanctification, first and foremost, comes from the heart, not externally. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, those are the fruits of the Spirit. Very little of it to none of it can be seen. Why? Because it's unseen, just like the Spirit is unseen, And therefore, we cannot be quick to judge just on the basis of what someone does or does not do. And I tell you what is taking place in Acts chapter 15 is not a small matter. This is the heart of the gospel. Whenever we add belief in Jesus plus something else, we have compromised the gospel And that is where we must, must, must draw the line. Yes, we can have friendly discussions and debates about certain topics, perhaps the the mode of baptism or who wrote the book of Hebrews or your end times view. Yes, there is room to differ and we can agree to disagree perhaps, but when it comes to the gospel, that of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, there is no discussion, there is no dissension, there is no division, there is no compromise because to teach anything other than that is to compromise Christ. It is a different gospel. That is why Paul is so adamant in Galatians chapter two. In fact, the whole book of Galatians is really a further explanation of Acts chapter 15. Paul says in Galatians chapter two, if you add circumcision, you don't have the gospel. You have another gospel, which he says is no gospel at all. It is not good news because there is no salvation in that. And this is a salvation issue. Notice what they are saying. You cannot be saved if you do not have circumcision. And so this group was calling into question the faith and commitment of many within that church. 
And no doubt, as it says in verse 2, is causing great dissension and debate. You can imagine so. Here are these Gentiles that are excited about faith in Christ, the salvation that they have, and yet now they're beginning to wonder, am I saved? Maybe not. Do I need to have circumcision in order to be saved, to demonstrate that I am saved? Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, I don't. This group from Jerusalem is saying, yes, I do. Who is right? And you could see how this would cause such dissension and division within the church. And how quickly this church in Antioch, as we saw several weeks ago, this model church of Jews and Gentiles coming together this beautiful community is now divided into pro-circumcision and anti-circumcision. And we know that Satan was behind all of it because he loves to sow that dissension and discord in the church, especially churches that are, are doing the work of the Lord. And this church was. There's tremendous blessings. And therefore, we should expect this. That false teaching would come in if we're, if we're doing God's work. We should understand that so too will be the opportunity for dissension and division, and we must fight it at every step. That's why one of the vows, one of the important essentials of becoming a member of this church is that you vow to the peace and the purity of the church. And those two go together, right? Without the, the purity of God's word, the purity of the doctrine of the gospel, we cannot have true peace, and we want to uphold it. And so what does this church in Antioch do? Well, they do only that which is natural, right? To split into 1st Presbyterian and 2nd Presbyterian of Antioch. Oh, wait, no, that's not what they do. Instead of division, they have deliberation. We see that in the second points. They elect represent, representatives, Paul and Barnabas and a few others, to go to Jerusalem to bring to this question what should be done. Now, we can't pass over this point. Many today think that the divisions in the church, the splits in the church, are caused by denominationalism. Let me ask this. What would have happened in Antioch, if the church in Antioch was independent, if they were non-denominational, if they didn't associate with any other church, especially the church in Jerusalem, what would have happened with this division, this debate? Well, I tell you what would have happened. Whoever had the greater power in the church would have won out. And what if the power brokers at that time were wrong? The, the minority would have either had to leave or they would have had to submit to that which was wrong. They would have had no right of appeal because whatever the one at the top or the group at the top wants is what goes. But that is not what takes place here. What we see is actually some biblical polity. You can call it denominationalism if you want to. But there is a connection, a connection that has some authority that is greater than the local body, the local church there in Antioch, one in which that had oversight and 
accountability over the church. Now, we shy away from accountability today, don't we? But accountability in itself is not a bad thing. It's a a good thing. And that is why we in our church polity are connected to a greater body than this local church. We're connected to local churches that make up a presbytery and even nationally to a, a national assembly that meets. I'm not saying that we have everything right. We don't. But there is some things that are very helpful in having this established structure, this biblical polity, if you'd call it. Because if and when Pastor Danny goes off the rails, (laughs) tries to become the Pope of Smyrna, and comes in with a large hat one day, and is teaching heresy or saying this is what needs to happen or else, You don't have to merely kiss the ring or go to Second Presbyterian of Smyrna. You can appeal to those that are above, just like they do in Acts chapter 15. Now, as I mentioned, this doesn't always stop division in the church, but this is much better than the alternative. See, no one thinks polity is important until there's a problem. And guess what? You may be new to this, but there are many problems in the church, namely you and me, because we're sinners, and we can go astray, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Didn't we not just sing that? And so, as I've said many times in the new member class, for every one frustration, I've had four times the thankfulness for our polity, for our denominationalism, if you would. And so to parrot Winston Churchill, Presbyterianism is the worst form of church government, except for all the rest. Which I say tongue-in-cheek, because I do believe it's a biblical model that's laid out for us in Acts chapter 15 that we should pay attention to. And so the church in Antioch appeals to this council of elders and pastors to deliberate this question. And it says that uh, they came together, verse 6, to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, which demonstrates that they were truly Presbyterian. Uh, Just come to General Assembly in a couple weeks. You'll see much debate on many things, many matters. Uh, We see that they uh, have two or at least two that are recorded here for us. Now Luke tells us of two speeches, that of Peter and that of James. First, you have the speech of Peter. And you might wonder, and no doubt Paul was wondering, what is Peter going to say? Sometimes you didn't always know what Peter was going to say. Oftentimes Peter would say something and do so without thinking. Speak first and think second. But even more than that, you remember that this had been a problem for Peter. Paul talks about it in Galatians, that Peter would be fellowshipping with the the Gentiles. He'd be having table fellowship. But when the party of the circumcised would come in, he would withdraw himself. He would disassociate from those Gentiles. He would try to cover up his 
pork breath with a tic-tac, right? Peter, did we see you talking to Gentile George over there? Who? Him? No, I don't even know him. Does that sound familiar? It's the same thing he did to our Lord on the night of his trial. And Paul said Peter's example was leading others astray, even Barnabas. And Paul confronts him and calls him out and says that he has acted hypocritically. He has not acted in step with the truth of the gospel. And we can praise God that Peter didn't always get things right, did he? But he was always willing to be corrected. And here in Acts chapter 15, you see that correction. You have good Peter. The Gentiles, Peter says, has heard the gospel by my mouth, referring to Cornelius' home in Acts chapter 10. In verse 7, it says that they have believed just like us. Verse 8, they have received the Holy Spirit just like us. Verse 11, they've been saved through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ just like us. And so here is the crux of Peter's argument. You see it there at the end of verse 9. He has made no distinction. God has made no distinction between us and them. So how dare we would make a distinction between us and them? Quite frankly, we are not even very good at our own distinctions, Peter says. We've failed at them. Why would we put that yoke now upon them, that burden that they have to fulfill in which we have not fulfilled? Again, it was good Peter. But we have another speech See, it wasn't Peter that was moderating this meeting, but James. Not James, the brother of John, as you might think. Not one of the disciples, but this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Son of Mary and Joseph. The author of the book of James. The one who Paul calls one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He's called James the Just. And after hearing what Peter has said and then hearing the, the witness of Paul and Barnabas, he says this. He quotes Amos chapter 9, saying that God has done a work and that he is rebuilding the tent of David that has fallen. He's building it from its ruins and will restore it so that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, I will make a new, that from of old. There's two beautiful things about James' statement here. First of all, his approach. James again doesn't say, listen to me, I'm James. I'm Jimmy. I'm the brother of Jesus. He and I grew up together, and he's not here, so I'm pretty much next in charge, so just listen to me. No, he says, listen to me, because this is what the Word of God says. The apostles had a very bad habit of not being very apostolic, did they? They were always deferring to the Word of God. Perhaps we should learn from their example. But second, notice what he says. He says, don't we see it? This is the fulfillment of prophecy, that God is restoring the kingdom the rebuilding of the tent of David, but we always thought that that meant Israel. 
the nation of Israel. But God had much bigger plans than that. We thought King David was great, the best of all, as the ruler of Israel. Small potatoes compared to David's greater son, King Jesus, who's the ruler not just of Israel, but of the nations. And this is a part of God's plan in bringing all of mankind under his, his rule and his reign. Do you hear what Peter is saying? Do you hear what James is saying? That this is so much greater. He's not just the God and Savior of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. And we are in desperate need of salvation. And praise God, he has provided it for us fully. There's nothing that can be added to it. There's nothing that can be taken from it. It's not Jesus and, it's Jesus alone. And so from this comes the decision. And the decision, quite simply, is that the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now there's several applications and ramifications for that, especially as we come to this table this morning. Again, we need to understand that this was a gospel issue. The gospel was and still is at stake. Whenever we say that you or anyone else must do something in order to be saved, hear this. You've corrupted the gospel. Why? Because you can never do enough. The emphasis is not on what you do. The basis is on what Christ has done, what he has accomplished. And that, my friends, is fully sufficient. You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. It is complete it is as complete as Jesus said it was complete upon the cross when he says, it is finished, which means that it is perfect. The full punishment of your sins has already been taken. The full demands of the law are already fulfilled. All we must do, if you want to put it in those terms, is to repent and to believe through faith and repentance, which Paul tells us is a gift of God, not by works, lest we should boast. See, we have nothing to boast except in Christ alone. And that, again, my friends, is where we need to draw the line in the sand. We can disagree about many different issues, but the gospel is not one of them. There is only one name under heaven in which men have been given by which we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus Christ alone. And so, my friends, don't dare add to it or take away from it. First and foremost, for yourselves, recognize who you are in Christ. Don't live by another gospel. Don't live by Jesus and, Jesus plus, Jesus and that work, Jesus and how well you do this coming week. That is not the gospel, my friends. It's in Jesus Christ alone. And don't have others conform to a different gospel. As I mentioned before, don't look down on others that have been bought by the same blood of Christ that you've been bought. 
even if they don't look like you or dress like you or act like you or do the same things that you do. I think we might be tempted to say, my church doesn't look like my church anymore. And I would say to you, you're right, it doesn't. It looks like the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was never my church anyway. It's Jesus Christ's church, the one that he has purchased with his blood. And so do you not see Acts chapter 15 is a watershed moment in the life of the church. Humanly speaking, if it were not for Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James standing up for the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, none of us would be here. None of us would know the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And it's through that gospel that the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is going to the ends of the earth, claiming all nations, even to the farthest corners of this earth. That's why we sang earlier, Jesus shall have dominion over land and sea. Earth's remotest region shall his empire be. And his kingdom, his empire, extends even to Smyrna, Georgia. Now, were any on that day thinking about Smyrna, Georgia, or you and me 2,000 years later? No, they were not, but Christ was. And you see what he was doing in that day through his church, through his elders, through his apostles, yes, even through church polity, if you want to put it in that manner, Christ was protecting and defending the pure and unadulterated gospel, the faith once delivered, to have it defended and proclaimed until he comes back again. And don't you see, it's our privilege to carry on that task, to, to carry on in that same tradition as the apostles and the elders that day until the whole world will know. Let's not get up, caught up in petty divisions and debates that have nothing to do with gospel truth. If and when we do, let's be quick to confess and to repent. And let's get back to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God has made no distinction between Jew and Gentile, between black and white, between Republicans and Democrats, no matter what division you want to insert there, it's because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And praise God, praise God, that we have a perfect and glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made us one. All glory and praise to King Jesus. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you and praise you of such a historical event as this. Lord, this is much more than just history. We know that division and dissension takes place, that there is false gospel that takes place even to this day. But Lord, would we battle against it and battle against it according to your 
to your spirit, by your spirit, and, and through your truth that you've given to us, the truth of your word, the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we never be willing to compromise that true gospel, because through it, O oh Lord, we have salvation and we have no hope except in and through it. And so, Lord, as we come to this table now, Lord, would it be a, a picture of our unity, our unity that we have first and foremost with you through the blood that was shed and the body that was broken, but also would it be a picture of the unity that we have as the body of Christ. Though we have many distinctions, though we have many differences, O oh Lord, none of that matters compared to being made one in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that each and every one of us are sinners that are in need of saving and that we have a perfect Savior. His name is Christ. And it's his name that we come. For we pray in Christ. Amen.